0: We've talked about how the emergence of new diseases seems to be linked quite deeply with how we produce our food and specifically with livestock production under industrial capitalism, under the logic of industrial capitalism. Deforestation and factory farming come together and they help these new pathogens jump from wild animals to domesticated animals and from there they jump to humans. But how does a virus like SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, spread so rapidly and so widely around the world? Part of the reason that COVID-19 spread so quickly is because even people with mild symptoms, symptoms that can go unnoticed, can infect two to three other people on average. And that's on average. We also know that this disease actually spreads in clusters where a person can infect a whole lot of people because maybe they're in an enclosed space with poor ventilation. So there's a biological question of how many people can get infected by one person, but that's also a social question. It has social dynamics, which is why we say things like, "Hey, wear a mask, keep your distance, don't hang out in enclosed spaces with poor ventilation, and wash your hands. Wash your hands anyway. It's a good thing to do. But there's a political economy to this question of transmission as well. If the infection is happening because of interpersonal transmission between people, then how is this interpersonal transmission so global, so widespread? How is it that a disease which starts in China, which emerges in China, ends up rapidly all over the world within the span of like a month or two? If you think back to our discussion of the Spanish flu in India, then you might recall us talking about its emergence and spread as being part and parcel of the global political economy of which British colonialism was such a massive part. And that led to the First World War and that led to the spread of the Spanish flu in so many ways. What might that kind of global political economy and its relationship to disease look like today? So Rob Wallace, who is an evolutionary biologist and epidemiologist, talks about how if deforestation and factory farming are on the rise, they're increasing in places like China and Malaysia. It's not simply a fault of China and Malaysia, because the capital that's being invested in these countries— The capital that is changing people's relationships to the land and to the forests is coming from places like New York, Hong Kong, London. So, this stuff is interconnected. As Wallace notes, agribusinesses move their companies into the global south to take advantage of cheap labor and cheap land, and they spread their entire production line across the world. By the way, if it's not clear, Global South refers to those countries that we might call developing countries or third world countries. In fact, those countries that historically were colonized. And Global North is kind of the opposite. They're the developed countries, the advanced capitalist countries, the countries that historically were colonizers. And another way of thinking about this, or talking about this rather, is that Global North countries form the core or the center of a world system, a world economic system, and that the Global South countries are the periphery of that system because they're not central to it. Now, the relationship between capital from the Global North, which is being invested in the Global South, is not just limited to agricultural business. In fact, many, if not most, businesses have some kind of global interconnection here. Most of the past 40 years of so-called globalization, has seen manufacturing displaced from the global north countries to these global south countries. Think about Apple. If you pick up an iPhone, on the back it says something like, made in China, designed in California. Now the thing about it being made in China is that its component parts are actually made all over the place. They're made all over Asia, and many of its component parts come from as far out as Africa. Many of the key minerals that are used in electronics come from countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And then think about the packaging. Who produces the cardboard boxes and plastic film? A commodity, which is something that is produced to be bought or sold on the market, is not just produced in one place. There is a chain through which its parts are produced before arriving at a final destination. We're talking about global commodity chains. What do these global commodity chains have to do with the transmission of viruses like COVID-19? Why does the production of commodities take this global or globalized form in the first place? And what does this kind of world economy mean for global south countries like Pakistan? Is it good for them or is it not so good for them? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy where we look at how politics and economics interrelate, but we also talk about how political economy can mean a lot more than just politics and economics. Over the course of this podcast, we will be inviting scholars from different disciplines and perspectives to speak to us about how they approach these kinds of questions. I am your host, Numan Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss global commodity chains, I'm quite fortunate to be joined by Dr. Intan Suwandi, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the Illinois State University in the United States and author of the book, Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism. Let's hear from Dr. Suwandi.
1: I study how a capitalist world economy, especially the organization of uh, global commodity chains relates to Global inequalities by focusing on capital labor
0: relations. Okay, what got you interested in this kind of work?
1: It's a long story, but being from Indonesia, I've known about uh, global inequalities since I was a child. The first, you know, one of the first things we learn in school is that. Uh, Indonesia um, is a developing country, it's a third-world country, and what it means is that we're not advanced, right, like the United States or Germany or Japan. So the understanding was that it was a national problem, and as a country, we have to catch up. So we also can be rich, right, like those advanced countries. And also, um, you know, in the late 80s, um, early 90s, I was aware that uh, the Nike shirts or shoes that were very popular among my friends, right, Um, they were made by... Indonesian workers, not far from where we live. And, I mean, these workers were paid a fraction of the final sales price of these products. Um, so I guess that was my first exposure to global commodity chains. And throughout the years, you know, I learned that, well, this issue of, of Indonesia being developing, a developing country or a 3rd world country, it's not a national problem, it's actually it's a complex problem involving an intricate web of relationships globally, and we are actually dealing with a global system that is again so complex on the one hand, but on the other hand preserves polarization between groups based on exploitative mechanisms. So I guess that's what kept me going. It's close to home, right? The subject matter is close to home. And from the beginning, I know that this is about real human beings, that this is about real people whose lives are affected, deeply affected, and their well-being threatened because of these mechanisms.
0: Okay, I think we're going to have to dig into all of that. But let me begin by asking you, what excites you about the work you're doing? And also, what are some of the challenges or frustrations that you face?
1: Yeah, what excites me is probably, you know, this curiosity to know more about you know, what allows global inequalities to persist. And, of course, to think about what are the alternatives and how can we together, you know, construct or <laughs> um, have solidarity globally to To create a movement that can that can serve as as a mechanism to fight back and uh, challenges when I was studying uh, this, one of them was about my method, I guess, because I interviewed executives of global South suppliers, and the first challenge was of course, it wasn't easy to get into these companies and to gain their trust and to talk so I can talk with with these executives. So yeah, the access wasn't easy, but I was lucky that I was able to do that. But you know, this is very important, I think, because only through talking to these people that you can know how how the mechanisms really work. Because these people are the ones who do the day-to-day operations, right, of management. And they, on the one hand, they deal with their multinational clients. And then on the other hand, they deal with their workforce. They manage their, their workers. And a lot of times, precisely in accordance to the demands that the multinational corporations give them. So their role is very crucial in global commodity chains, and I want to know how they work. But also another challenge is that sometimes people question that and ask, uh, why do you uh, talk to executives, right? You know, why don't you talk to workers? Uh, You're a Marxist. But of course, to, to know how the system works. You have to talk to people who understand how the system works, right? Uh, You have to understand their logic. You have to see what the rationale is in doing this day-to-day operations. So I think, I still think that's important.
0: You've mentioned this term a few times, global commodity chain. And I think to somebody who is new to this kind of discussion Or even to myself, every time I hear the term global commodity chain, I get intimidated. Like, what does that mean? And then to complicate the matter, I think like the title of your book is Value Chains. Other people talk about global supply chains. Are these all referring to the same thing? And if so, can you just tell us what exactly is a global commodity chain?
1: Yeah, I know that can be complicated and confusing, especially to people who are not familiar with the terms. But yes, there are so many terms. There's a global commodity chains, global value chains, global supply chains, global production networks. (laughs) Um, So sometimes they are used interchangeably, and when they are used interchangeably, it just means like a vast network of people, tools, and activities that are needed to deliver goods and services to the market. And as I argue in the book, these chains are controlled by multinational corporations. But different approaches use different terms with special reasons. The global value chains scholars, for example, they say they use global value chains instead of global commodity chains because they want to emphasize the value-added aspect of the chains. But interestingly, um, in the corporate world, they usually distinguish between global supply chains and global value chains. And global supply chains is the emphasis is on on the movement on the physical commodities itself, while global value chains again is the emphasis is on the value added uh, mechanism in each node. And I actually. In the book itself, I introduce labor value commodity chains. But in general, I do use global commodity chains because of its historical background. It's traced back to uh, Terence Hopkins and Emmanuel Wallerstein. They used, they popularized the term in the seventies, uh, since the seventies. But it's also traced back to Marx. He actually talked about the general chain of metamorphosis taking place in the world of commodities. And by saying this, he actually acknowledges both use value and exchange value that present in each link of these chains. I probably use global commodity chains. The title of my book is Value Chains. It's to put emphasis on this also, this idea of value added as a form of economic imperialism.
0: Okay, so we're going to get into uh, these things a little bit more. So my understanding from what you've said is that what we're talking about here is like instead of a thing being produced just in one country by one company, What you have is a thing that's going to be produced in many countries, like one part of it is made maybe in Taiwan, another part of it is made in Korea, and then it might all get assembled in Indonesia. Uh Can you give us an example of what would a typical commodity chain look like?
1: A typical commodity chain is very, very complicated. Uh, Say, an iPhone The components of iPhones are made in so many countries. And so each component is made by, say, uh, this supplier. And the supplier also got their intermediate goods from other (laughs) suppliers in other countries. So it can be really complicated. The way it works is that these components that come from various countries then in the end, it will be assembled. And in a certain country, for example, with iPhone, it's assembled in China. And one of the biggest suppliers that do this is Foxconn with its factories in China, but it's actually a Taiwanese company. So in the end, it's the point of assembly, say, in China and So when we say it's made in China, it's actually assembled in China with different components coming from a lot of other places.
0: So China is important here because it produces so much of this stuff or so much stuff is assembled here. I think you've made the argument that these kinds of global commodity chains have also played a role in the spread of COVID-19. What does global supply chains have to do with coronavirus
1: So this is also a long story, I guess. Epidemiologists like Rob Wallace, he would argue that something like agribusiness and along with its global commodity chains have allowed something like this, a virus to spread really quickly and easily. It allowed it allowed the pathogen to be transferred from its exotic non-human animal to, to human host. And of course, this is related to deforestation and also the creation of agricultural hubs in various countries that also make it possible for viruses like this to move to urban population, in other words, big cities in, in different countries. So it just makes it really possible, I guess, for pathogens like this to move around easily because of all, this, all these factors along with the, you know, the global commodity chains that accompany them. And of course, with global commodity change, you talk about people traveling a lot because we're talking about a world economy. And with trade, people also travel.
0: So in one of your articles, you point out that Wuhan, which appears to be the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak, there are like 51,000 companies around the world which are supplied by companies in Wuhan.
1: For tier one only, I think. So tier one is when um, the suppliers deal directly with the multinational corporations. But you also have tier two, tier three, because the suppliers may get their parts from other companies. And those companies may get their parts from other companies, say the materials, the raw materials, and all of that. So that's why global commodity chains can be very complex and actually There's no CEO in this world who knows the complete set of global commodity chains. And when there was a company that tries to do that, it took them like a year just to map their suppliers until tier two. So (laughs) they don't even know the tier three level. So when... You know, a pandemic happened, then we have the, the consequence. So when something is disrupted, say China was the first place that was disrupted and a lot of companies depend on suppliers in Wuhan, for example, then the whole global supply chain is disrupted. And that's what happened. We saw this, especially in the beginning of the pandemic.
0: So we have maybe two dynamics going on. First of all, the fact that all these companies are so interconnected, there's so much trade happening, so much travel happening, that that will naturally make the spread of any disease that much easier. Uh Nothing is made in one place and everything is connected all over the world, all of this travel. And then the other part of it is, if a disease does travel far and wide because of this system, then that system has to be shut down.
1: Yeah, it's like a system of revenge, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> so that's that's the the huge consequence that that we had to face with this kind of complex system.
0: Yeah, basically everything everything just came to an end. Now, there's something interesting about production as well. So you said that the iPhone, for example, gets assembled in China, but recently we've been hearing that there's tension between the United States and Europe on one hand and China on the other. And that this has to do with the fact that China is trying to move up in the kinds of things that it produces. I understand that there's actually a division in the world in terms of what kind of stuff does get produced by these commodity chains in global South countries. And on the other hand, there's some other kinds of stuff that are produced in global North countries. Can you explain a little bit about what gets produced in the global North? and what gets produced in the global South?
1: So the global commodity chains scholars, the the mainstream view of this subject, they usually categorize global commodity chains into different governance structures. And um, there's on the one hand, uh, the producer-driven, they call it producer-driven chains. And this is for you know, high-tech industries, capital-intensive, usually, like car factories. And they usually have this producer-driven line where the car companies headquartered, say, in the United States, they will have subsidiaries in other uh, countries, and they will have a more direct control over the production in those subsidiaries and then on the other hand there's what we call buyer driven chains and these are for companies like nike you you know usually it's apparel companies or shoes and all of that and it's usually associated with with labor intensive industries and you know something that is not considered high tech but of course there are a lot of variations in between and You know, the mainstream theory itself has developed throughout the years, throughout this decade especially. And what's happening is that the chains are now more and more buyer-like. Even that producer-driven kind of um, system has become more and more buyer-like with more outsourcing involved, arm's-length contracting so you know a lot of the parts that are needed to build a car for example or a high tech thing like computers right they are outsourced to different suppliers that are not subsidiaries direct subsidiaries of of multinational companies so there's a trend of it become more and more buyer like so for example with computers or other high tech gadgets it is basically assembled in the South. And then we can, of course, talk about, well, how much control these multinationals have over the technology. But in terms of the chains themselves, they are outsourced to other companies. So it has become more complex like that. But Also, you know, if we talk about agricultural products, you know, tropical commodities, they are still traditionally from the South, from the global South. And this is tied to the long history of colonialism.
0: You know, you described how there's producer-driven chains and buyer-driven chains. And it used to be kind of that producer-driven chains, they would have far more control over the production process.
1: Because production is mostly done by subsidiaries of multinationals, so through foreign direct investments. So of course, they still have that line of commands that contains more obvious uh, direct control from the headquarters.
0: And on the other hand, then you have buyer-driven chains where instead of my own company, a subsidiary being my own foreign direct investment in in a third world country, or even in a different first world country, I'm now contracting or the word you used is outsourcing.
1: Outsource or arm's length contract means that you are engaging in a contractual relationship with other companies. They are not your own companies. You're just, they're supplying to you.
0: You know, one example that I can think of in Pakistan's history back in, I think it was 2012, in September, there was a massive factory fire, fire in, yeah. in Karachi where I think 260 people were burned to death. And what we found out was that that factory was owned by a company called Ali Enterprises. No relation to me. The, uh, I just have to clear clarify that. <laughs> um, and that there was a German company called Kick that had contracted Ali Enterprises to make the jeans that these people were making so uh-huh. Kik didn't own that factory. Kik had no, uh-huh. they didn't, weren't concerning themselves with the production process. So that would be an example of a buyer-driven thing in, in, in my understanding. And that's outsourcing or arm's uh-huh. length contracting.
1: Right. Nike is always given as, as a prime example, right? Because Nike, since the very beginning, never made their own products. So if you're asked, what does Nike make? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> they don't make anything right um all of their commodities are made by other other suppliers they started as an importer of shoes from japan and then you know later they design their products but they never make them
0: wow okay so nike makes nothing that's they, a yes. really <laughs> interesting way of of uh, putting it the other part of that though so okay on one hand these companies then control the brands they control the technology exactly and somebody else is making the stuff is actually mm-hmm. producing the stuff i think what i was trying to ask in terms of the uh, of you know global north makes one kind of thing and you pointed out that agricultural commodities tropical commodities those are definitely produced in many third world countries or global mm-hmm. south countries mm-hmm. but when i look at something like pakistan pakistan is a pretty big country 200 million people I think it's a bit smaller than Indonesia in terms of population, Uh but what we produce mostly is just cotton textiles, which is very low value added, Uh very low tech, mostly labor intensive. We're trying to get an auto industry started, but that it just doesn't pick up and it's because the engine technology is owned by Japan or by the United States and they do not want to share it with us. Mm-hmm. So to me, that, that strikes me as a as a division of labor where the high-tech knowledge and skills are controlled by the global North. Japan is part of that. Mm-hmm. And what we yes. in the global South end up doing is just dealing with like, here, we'll make your jeans and we'll make your car doors and then you will give us the engine and we'll just put it into the final thing. So is is that a very real thing or is that breaking down?
1: So... You know some scholars in in the mainstream school of global commodity chains they they usually are very optimistic that like countries can climb up they can catch up because power in global commodity chains seems so decentralized right i mean on the surface, it does look as if it's decentralized right you have so many actors involved from from many countries and Especially if you talk about this buyer-driven chains, (laughs) sometimes you lose sight about power. Some scholars use examples of East Asian countries, right? like South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, the early ones that seem to benefit from these chains, they say. And they can climb up from dealing with uh, labor-intensive, low-value-added stuff to Better high tech industries. Now, of course, that's debatable. You know, if you see export import compositions, also you can see what countries like Indonesia, for example, export and what they import. They export consumer goods and they import machines and a lot of other capital goods. So even if you see from the export import composition, you can see what the role of that country is in the global economy. And even though some people would argue you can climb up, well, it's more difficult than that. What other scholars argue, I guess, including me, is that if you see the data, the countries that have the highest portion of global supply chains jobs are countries with low unit labor cost. And these are China, India, Indonesia, Mexico. And what we can see is that the country with lowest unit labor costs, they tend to be the site of final production or assembly, right? That made in China, made in Indonesia labels. And they become the most critical node for the enlargement of gross profit margins that's where labor is "quote unquote cheap the wage is low but when you look at unit labor costs you actually do not only consider wages but also productivity right unit labor costs incorporates both factors so not only that they have lower wages but they also have high productivity productivity is comparable to countries in the global north so wages are not the only issue here and this is important because countries like these they have increased wages throughout the period of last uh, two decades or so and so wages always have Some kind of dynamic, and a lot of times they are pushed by popular protests, right? By mass protests in the country. So, say, minimum wages came up, and well, these corporations have to have strategies to counter that. And of course, if wages come up, but productivity also comes up, then it's not a problem for them.
0: I think we're really here getting into the logic of the system why it exists. And this concept of unit labor cost. Well, one thing that's happened, as you must know, is that China is investing deeply into Pakistan. But many times, China will bring workers, Chinese workers, uh-huh. and Pakistani workers will say, Why are you not ha- hiring us? And even though the Chinese workers are getting paid more, uh-huh. I think it has to do with this concept of unit labor cost that maybe a Pakistani worker in an hour can say, let's produce, you know, $60 worth of stuff. But a Chinese worker in an hour can produce like $120 worth of stuff. So even if I'm paying the Chinese worker a bit more, the unit labor cost, the stuff that is being produced per unit of labor is much greater or the Uh unit labor cost is lower. The cost is lower. Uh Uh And so that's why I'm going to uh, value that Chinese labor over Pakistani labor. That then ties into the logic of why it is that I, as a business person or a capitalist, would want a global network. It's so that at each and every point in this network, I can lower my, my unit labor costs. Uh-huh. So if I'm producing something high tech that's complicated in Korea, then I don't need to hire the same labor to complete the thing. I get it shipped to China where the cost of labor is lower and that gets produced or or finalized in China. And in this way, I have kept my overall cost down. Mm -hmm. Yes. That just blew my mind.
1: Yeah, because labor can be expensive, right? And that's, that's actually the main drive of this new globalization. Globalization has accompanied capitalism from the very beginning. I mean expansion was tied to imperialism and colonialism throughout history. I mean um you know, it includes the conquest of the Americas, the colonial subjection of Asia and Africa, right by European powers, and now we have this current globalization which has its own characteristics that I will talk about. But throughout you know these centuries the goal is the same right you want to plunder uh, earth's natural resources and you also want to exploit labor in the peripheries and you can do this even without presence or existence of of former formal colonies and as a matter of fact since the 7th the mid 1700 you know when we talk about colonialism or imperialism um they have become more and more informal right accompanying uh, the development of the industrial revolution and, and industrial enterprises trade with colonies uh, started to change in accordance to the logic of, of capitalism. So there's a lot of changes that are happening in each period. And now, you know, it started in, in the 70s. Globalization also has its new characteristics. And that's what we have been talking about, is the increase of flow of foreign direct investments to the global south Starting from 2010, more than half of FDI inflow goes to the Global South. And even when there's a decline in Global FDI in the last few years, it didn't affect the flow to Global South. It kept increasing. So that's one. And then maybe arguably the more interesting or more important is Uh, The increase in arm's length contracts that we talk about, the outsourcing. So these are some of the new characteristics. And then you you can see that global workforce is now concentrated in the global south, right? Especially industrial workforce. That's the pattern that has happened throughout these few decades. And then the increase in global supply chains work, jobs, And concentrated also in the global south. So, this is the new globalization.
0: So, before, would it be fair to say that in the global south, most of the production was of like agricultural commodities and these were being exported to the first world? And the first world is where you would have manufacturing, like production Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. industrial production would be in the first world. Mm -hmm. But the new globalization has increasingly led to industrial manufacturing being now located in the Global South. Right. And that's yeah, what tra- makes it new.
1: Right. Because tra- yeah, traditionally, you know, Global South exporting raw materials to, to supply for industries in, in the Global North, right? And it, it started a long time ago with the development of industrial enterprises in Europe. But more and more... The increase in FDI and arms and contract kind of make that change. But of course, it's also a part of this development of monopoly capital. That's also another important thing that that we need to incorporate in our discussion is that we saw a development of giant corporations in the global north. So corporations have evolved, of course, and in the 70s, starting in the 60s, even, we saw this rise of multinational corporations. And if you read U.S. news or other you know, outlets in the U.S. in the 60s, they were really excited about this development. But these are giant corporations that behaved quite differently and very bureaucratic. And these multinational corporations have their own mechanisms of hierarchy, and they expand to other countries, first through subsidiaries, and they have hierarchies of power within their system, but the full control is held in the North, in the headquarters. And what's interesting about multinational corporations is that they are oligopolies, basically, and they can ban price cutting. So this is the characteristic of monopoly capital, is that it's no longer a competitive capitalism like in the Marxist era. Now oligopolies can ban price cutting Uh, because they don't want to fight against each other. They want to avoid retaliation. So that creates other consequences. But basically, if you see who are the big players now in the market, they are just a few big, really big companies. And mergers and acquisitions have happened throughout um, the years that, that makes them even bigger and more powerful.
0: So the logic of a kind of capitalism, of a market competitive capitalism, is that you have many, many, many companies, uh-huh. and they're all competing with each other to sell a product at the lowest price. Right. But when you do that, then every other company now has to sell it at a lower price. And then that might start to cut into your profits at some point. Uh-huh. But with monopoly capital, you have fewer and fewer companies, and they start openly or not so openly collaborating with each other to Uh set prices, as you say, Uh to to not allow for price cutting to happen. Uh And that way, an oligopoly, I think, just means, uh, monopoly means one company. Oligopoly just means a few, like just a few companies, as you pointed out. And now they're the ones who are setting the the prices. Uh But the difference between, say, a monopoly company or an oligopoly in one country versus these new multinational companies which are a few companies, but they have operations in many, many places. So this is the evolution of capitalism. Capitalism is not just a static system that stays in one place.
1: Exactly. Yes. And the consequence, of course, with the, you know, you cannot lower your price, right? Um, You have several consequences. And one of them is that you have to uh, make sure that your production cost is low. And this is one of the mechanisms that kind of push the new development. And flexible production is is one of the things that these companies do. They engage in what is Stephen Roach, he popularized this. He was a former chief economist of Morgan Stanley. He popularized this term global labor arbitrage. And it's basically uh, taking advantage of wage differences in the global market, which is imperfect market. Because on the one hand, you have capital that can freely go from one place to another. Um, But on the other hand, labor is still pretty much, well, of course, not absolutely, but pretty much confined within borders.
0: So the system where capital can go anywhere and labor is more or less still, still restricted. I mean, to some extent, you know, you're from Indonesia, but now you're in the United States. I'm from Pakistan, but now I'm in Canada.
1: Yeah, and but we don't work in factories. Th-
0: that's exactly <laughs> it. It's because we're skilled labor. We have these, uh, the, as they call it, human capital that they've allowed us to come to their countries. One thing about this system that we're talking about, it's very complex. As you said, it's decentralized. So it seems like there's no central node. But you've also said, actually, these multinational companies, they may not know, you know, exactly where they're getting all their stuff from, but they set the terms. It really is under their control. Why do you describe this as imperialism? Because when I think of imperialism, even you spoke about it in terms of colonialism. There was a time when Britain would uh, take their armies. They took over India and Pakistan, the Dutch took over Indonesia. Like that's imperialism. And today, if I look at imperialism, I might say, yeah, the United States invaded Afghanistan, the United States invaded Iraq. That seems like imperialism. What does imperialism have to do with economic relations?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, good question. <laughs> so, first of all, though, imperialism today. Again, it cannot be separated from the long history of European expansion. I mean, that was basically the the thing that set these divisions, that influenced these divisions. We cannot forget that history. And people would argue that it basically continued to become forms of neocolonialism, even. So you don't have to be former colonies of these European powers to still be subordinate to them in a lot of other terms, including economic. So the thing that I'm focusing on is economic imperialism, where imperialism happens through political economic aspects. When we talk about capitalist imperialism or a system of unequal hierarchical world economy dominated by giant oligopolies, and a handful of states in the imperial core, where these companies are headquartered, it also has its own characteristics right this capitalist imperialism it 's not the imperialism, say in classical antiquity, where imperialism was about geographical expansion to other areas, and then it 's also about the exaction of a tribute. a capitalist imperialism is characterized by this process, and this is, I'm borrowing Harry Macduff's explanation, is this process where the dominated areas are transformed, adapted, and manipulated to serve the imperatives of capital accumulation at the center. So again, these areas, the global south in this case, are transformed, adapted, and manipulated to serve the interests of the global north, right, and global north capital. In this kind of um, process, the firm level transformations, they are often given, given with no real organic relation or logic uh, steaming from the emerging economy. They're just like dropped into these places without considering, you know, the situation or the needs of the people in the Global South. They're just, they're just dropped in there. So, you know, Global North oligopolies, multinationals can benefit from them. And this is deliberately designed so it can be easily dismantled So again, no organic relation with the places where this production happens.
0: So I talked about cotton exports in Pakistan. And I would guess, I mean, I don't have figures for this, but I would guess that the majority of Pakistanis cannot afford to wear cotton textiles. Uh It's just too expensive. Uh Uh, I can wear it because I make a pretty good salary. And I know people who can wear cotton. But if I go to working class neighborhoods, if I go to villages... They're wearing, wearing imported polyester goods. So the cotton that we're making, <laughs> yeah. that we grow and we process, is actually being exported. And as you said, these kinds of factories or this kind of production is just being plopped in. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and, and there's two terms we didn't cover, uh, special economic zones, right. which are also called export processing zones. So they're special precisely because the labor laws of that country don't apply the tax laws don't apply. Uh-huh. These, these foreign multinationals, oligopolies, as you say, just come in, they set up a company, they use the cheap labor to make this stuff, and then it's processed for exports. Uh-huh. The thing you're saying is that there's no organic relation to the actual needs of the people. Uh-huh. Then what's actually happening here is you are using labor that's as cheap as possible to maximize as much of your profit.
1: Uh-huh yeah and export processing zones are important right in this discussion, um, because they were built to fulfill the needs of global north capital, and a lot of countries were forced and in the global south were forced to to abandon their import substitution industries. To export-oriented industries, that's on the industrial side, manufacturing. But you know, you can also talk about it in terms of agribusiness. Um, it was a deliberate effort um, uh, by you know world powers to uh, kind of dismantle this um, agrarian welfare states and they introduced agribusiness in the same way, right, with no organic relations. They have to cater to the needs of the global north, and as a result, de-peasantization happened, uh, migration, mass migration happened because peasants lost their lands, and they had to migrate and then join the reserve army of labor. This was also complemented by uh, the great doubling. This is referring to when countries like China, former socialist country, and India, former protectionist country, joined or being incorporated into the global economy. And there you go. You have so many new potential labor force they are incorporated into the reserve army of labor.
0: So uh, what is the reserve army of labor exactly?
1: Well, you can say it's labor pool, right? (laughs) The labor pool, these are a group that can be workers who are ready to sell their labor power. And so if you have a large pool of labor, then workers can easily be replaced That's one thing. And of course, wage can be kept low.
0: On this, like wages going low or wages going high, I kind of want to push back against this idea of imperialism because, sure, maybe you have export processing zones or special economic zones. But as you've pointed out, wages have increased for these workers. And so if I'm in Pakistan and I'm looking at Indonesia, I'm jealous. I'm like, oh, my God, look, Indonesia is getting so much foreign direct investment or FDI Uh, Look at that. They have so many factories. Look at that. Their wages are going up. And to me, that's what I want. And that's what the World Bank is telling me. That's what the IMF is telling me, that we need export-oriented production. That's one thing. The other thing is, aren't Global South countries willing collaborators? Like maybe a hundred years ago, Britain would come at us with guns and we didn't have a choice. But now nobody is holding a gun up to her head and saying, you have to do this, you know, and and people are getting rich, wages are going up. So how do you say that this is imperialism?
1: (laughs) Yes. First of all, of course, there's no real guns, although sometimes there are guns. (laughs) There are real guns placed on your head. Um, So here's uh, this is also important, right? So on the one hand, yes, um, it's not the old colonialism. but there are a lot of a lot of factors that force countries to incorporate themselves. You know, Global North powers are really powerful. They can do this through different means, but there's bilateral or multilateral agreements whose points are controlled by Global North. but then there's also institutions, financial institutions like World Bank and the IMF who will serve as henchmen, right, of the Global North Powers to force Global South to do what they want. And this is the most disgusting about this issue is, is structural adjustment policies where, say, World Bank or IMF can force countries who are already, you know, have debts to them and they will say, okay, so... Uh, in order for you to to be able to pay your interest? This is really high interest, right? Your interest to us or your debt payment to us. Why don't you preserve your cash flows for debt payments? To, in order to do this, you have to have austerity measures. You have to cut subsidies for public health, for education, so you can pay your debt. That's one thing. And another thing is that they can... A push for that country to open the market, to open these export processing zones, for example, or to do certain things in agribusiness that would benefit the agribusiness corporations in the global north. So that's not literally guns, but you're forced to do that. But also, there are literal guns, right? Um, Corporations, through whatever their intricate connections I mean, you know, peasants, say, uh, rebel all the time. They fight back. They don't want to give their land to, say, agribusiness corporations. But a lot of times they can hire paramilitary, for example, to intimidate peasants, sometimes kill them when they fight back. Of course, in more sophisticated scenarios, multinational corporations can work with local military Governments who are, like you said, willing to cooperate with global north capital to oppress people who fight back. And, you know, military occupations in places like Papua, West Papua, for example, of mining companies, global north capital cooperating with local imperialism to oppress the whole people.
0: I think we may have some parallels in Pakistan as well. We understand that IMF World Bank often operate through our local institutions. The military in Pakistan often supports those kinds of things. And politicians, of course, are also supportive of that. There's no politician in Pakistan who has ever avoided an IMF treaty. I think just to maybe wrap up, I'd like to ask you what you think the future of this complex system is. What, what would happen if they move their production out of China? What will global commodity chains look like? How will that impact workers and uh, just the world?
1: Well, I think the first question we want to ask is like how possible it is to restructure the global economy quick and easily, right? I mean, it's probably n- not possible to do in a short period of time. Um, The thing is, some people already say that, well, yeah, you can take out your production from China, but what's going to happen, right? For example, because of the U.S., this new Cold War narratives, companies already started to take their production out of China and say they moved to other countries like Vietnam. But then, you know, when the disruption happened, you can see how difficult it is because Vietnam also depended on China for intermediate goods. See, global commodity chains is so complex that one country is dependent on the other countries, even when they are producers. So, you know, of course, it's still disrupted. And then there's also question about, well, how ready are other countries to become, you know, the new centers because they need infrastructure. For you to be able to be the center of production, you have to have infrastructure to support that. And that will take a while. And then if you want to bring in, bring back production to, say, the United States, you also need to be ready to rebuild industries And that's also not easy. So we don't know what's going to happen. I cannot predict. But what we can probably guess is that, well, global north capital and the core countries will continue to look for low unit labor costs, no matter where it is, right? No matter how the restructuring would look like. I think they would still follow that logic of accumulation.
0: I think Samir Amin and others define it as transferring value across space. So the value may be produced in these third world or global south countries through low unit labor costs, but that value is then realized, gets counted in the global north.
1: Right. So, you know, people like John Smith, for example, argue that it's actually not value added, it's value captured. We're capturing value from the global south and we're looking at this process called surplus drain. So it's actually surplus is draining from the global south to the global south. North. That's what happens in global commodity chains if we look behind the veil of the decentralization of power. And, of course, people like the mainstream scholars would argue that, yeah, like what you said, right? Well, these countries would want to do it because they would develop more if you do this. But, well, we have to also analyze the assumption of development, the narrative of development, and probably have to challenge the idea that everybody will develop the same way, and if you follow the path of these advanced countries, you'll be fine. But as we see, that's not how it works, really, in reality. And it's not a totally pessimistic scenario, right? (laughs) Because... Um, What we have learned, of course, throughout history is that workers revolt, workers fight back, peasants fight back. And especially in the Global South, they continue to fight back. So I think we have to find a way to create global solidarity if we want to give a really significant challenge to how the system works right now.